Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. Week in, week out, we introduce topics that organizations in Asia and elsewhere are grappling with. This week, we take a look at mindfulness. The term means different things to different people, and in preparation for this program, I spent some time perusing a number of descriptors. In the end, I liked Wikipedia's definition the best. Mindfulness, and I quote, is the psychological process of purposely bringing one's attention to experiences occurring in the present moment without judgment. What the heck does that have to do with the running and operating of a modern corporation, you ask? Well, hold tight, because in this episode, I track down someone who lives and breathes mindfulness at the organizational level. Shrivan Naidu works in higher education and professional development consulting. He's based in Singapore and has found in recent months a discernible increase in interest from corporations desperate to improve employee satisfaction, team performance, and commercial results. How can mindfulness help? That's the question I put to Shrivan. I asked him to explain how two seemingly antithetical concepts, mindfulness and commercialism, might in fact coexist. I think mindfulness um, has, is a growing thing. Lots of people are talking about it. There's, um, they use it in different senses of the word. Um, but it's not antithetical to the corporate setting in my experience. Um, so I'd be happy to share my thoughts. Before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I've been in lots of roles in lots of sectors all my life. But the common thread is about developing people and developing human capital, uh, whether it's in schools, whether it's among managers, whether it's among leadership, uh, or even among uh, public sector, mm. right? So um, I'm convinced that the problems of the world can't be solved by solutions because we'll get back into the same messes. What we need is for people to raise the quality of their consciousness. That's a big statement. Are you ready to back that up? Um, well, it's... Think about it. Um, that movie with the Avengers and the solution to to all the environmental problems was killing half the people. But if people are still consuming the way they do, pretty soon we'll be back to the the same solution, the yeah. same situation, right? Yeah. So any solution is short lived if people don't change the way they think and behave. Leave it to Hollywood to give us the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> So, so before we go there, um, uh, I mean, you uh, now and again take some of your own medicine. You have your own mindfulness practice. Absolutely. I, I believe you took off and you did uh, Vipassana, uh, which is a silent retreat recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Okay, so um, I wish I had done a Vipassana, but I didn't have the time for the 10 days um, to set aside. So I did a short one in, in Bangkok, a five-day one. Um, at a nice uh, Thai uh, temple called Wat Sangatan. And in incredibly, there just happened to be a German nun who'd been living in Thailand for 20 years. Um, so she was English-speaking, and um, she taught me some incredible practices on eating meditation and walking meditation uh, that um, were, were eye-opening for me. Were you in silence the whole time? Uh, except for when I was getting instruction from English-speaking um, monks or abbots uh, or this nun, I, I was in silence the whole time. It was surprisingly easy because nobody there spoke English. Mm. What does this do for you? When, you? when you have your practice, what are you looking for? What's the output for you or the outcome? So there's different kinds of practice. There's my daily practice. There's my practice ad hoc as and when I don't feel I'm quite as mindful and collected as I should be. 
And then there's things like these retreats, which are long periods of um, uh, prolonged practice. Uh, but I think your question was more about the retreats. What am I looking for in the retreats? Not necessarily. I just want to know what compels you to follow a mindful practice. Where did this stem from? Okay. From your background, from an occasion, from an event in your life, from mm -hmm. a, a sense of being or needing to be more aligned with the world? I don't know. Right. So I think it probably started when I was 15 and an angry teenager with lots of energy, uh, which I used to express through physical sports, like uh, contact sports and, and the game of squash, which is about banging the ball as hard as you can against the wall. Uh, and then I met an impressive uh, gentleman who became my mentor for many years. And I was impressed by how calm and creative he could be in almost all circumstances. And when I found out that uh, meditation and contemplation was part of his practice, I gave it a try. And I've never stopped since then. Mm. And then you brought this into your professional life. Uh, w w what led you to say, uh, I can parlay what I've learned personally or what I've seen in the world or what I've read and researched in terms of mindfulness to bring it to uh, into the work you do? Right, that's a great question. I mean, for many years, it was unconsciously part of my professional life. But a couple of years ago at Singapore Management University, uh, a friend of mine who researches mindfulness in organizations, his name is Jochen Reb, uh, started uh, an initiative uh, based on a book he wrote, Cambridge Press, Mindfulness in Organizations, um, where he studies the impact of introducing mindfulness across an organization and how and when to do it and what kind of results you get. Um, and so there was an initiative at the university and I thought, hey, you could actually make this consciously a part of an organizational culture. And then we met... Um, a guy called Juan Humberto Young, uh, who out of Madrid, uh, i.e. Madrid, uh, runs a program, a master's program, uh, that has mindfulness as part of the training for executives. Mm. And so from his experience, we knew that it was valuable. And um, he had incorporated his experience as a senior executive with... Um, his training as a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist, and he designed a program that was relevant to leaders. We've heard so much about uh, developments or um, uh, evolutions in neuroscience. We know more about the brain in the last 10 or 12 years than we've known mm -hmm. in any, any years prior. And I also watch and wonder when I see leadership development attempts to reframe the way that we engage in the world, the way that we react, the way we manage our emotions. What is the difference at the end of the day between just behavioral science and what the brain does and this thing called mindfulness? Hmm, That's a great question and uh, probably have to answer it in several parts. So firstly, let me just say that the uh, the biological sciences, uh, whether it's neuro, neuroscience, etc., uh, helps in understanding what happens when you practice mindfulness um, and what happens in your brain as you make decisions. And that's great for individual performance. But when you put it in an organizational setting, you sort of need to look at the interactions between one, pers one person's mindfulness and, the, and another person's. And... Um, there's lots of decision theory that talks about what is a better decision and what's a more rational decision and how we make bad decisions, but not a lot, not as much on how to get leaders and managers to make better decisions. So there's this emerging field called 
um, behavioral decision theory. Uh, it's a subset of decision theory, and it doesn't talk about evaluating the decisions, but how do you get people to make better decisions? And so this is one of those subjects that has been incorporated into the mindfulness-based strategic awareness training that I teach. Um, and it marries mindfulness practice with how you need to get into situations where you ask the right questions, you collect the right information, you get into a quiet space before making uh, an impulsive decision, um, and how to get in touch with um, all aspects of your being so that you make sustainable decisions that you are less likely to regret and have more favorable outcomes for both yourself and the people who work for you. Let me ask it this way. In order to approach a corporation with this idea of introducing mindfulness to your workforce, mm -hmm. is it necessary or is it advisable to couch it in terms of science? In other words, science tells us that if you are in a forward state of mind, a positive frame of mind, you're not stressed, you're relaxed, you're receptive, you're actually more inclined to make better decisions and therefore the organizational benefit. That's the neuroscience. That's what we know about the brain and how the body reacts when you're, in a, uh, when you're not in a, in a moment of stress. Is mindfulness simply a tool which can be applied to get the result that you want in order to prove the science. Okay, so here I'm going to say something possibly controversial. Um, God forbid. Um, I think my guess is that organizations uh, being driven by the profit uh, motive these days and short-term profit mo motive at that are less inclined to care about how much an individual's mindfulness adds to his creativity and his life satisfaction, but more does it add to performance and the bottom line? Yeah. Um, in the interests of the corporations, they are receptive to reduced absenteeism from work um, and anything that might be a cost on their health insurance. So mindfulness for well-being is well regarded. But I think there's a big missed opportunity on mindfulness for increased performance, increased creativity, um, and all the upsides of well-functioning people. And now here is where the, the neurological science doesn't do as much as what my colleague at uh, Jochen Reb does in showing that organization-wide, it improves the organization's output and performance. And that's a bit of a stretch. It requires everybody to be operating in sync and be equally aware and conscientious of the importance and the practice of mindfulness, yes? No, actually not. So there's some evidence, uh, and again from Jochen Reb's study, uh, that um, just the mindfulness of the leader affects the the state of his subordinates, even if they're not aware of his practice or the need for practice, right? Trickle down. There's a trickle down. Um, and of course, of the leader more than uh, the subordinate. But I'm sure it, to some extent, it operates the other direction too. Um, the other thing is that... Um, Sorry, could you repeat your question? Well, it's just about, I'm just trying to understand uh, whether or not, from, from an individual aspect, we can understand how mindfulness would make somebody more effective, mm. more calm, more receptive, yeah. uh, higher learning agility. Uh, lots of different things can happen, and we know this because it's been studied. But in an organizational setting, you actually have a situation where it feels like it's required for everybody to be participating to some degree in order to get the collective result. Right. So I think there are three levels here. At the lowest level, mindfulness across the organization will, will increase well-being and re, uh, avoid the worst effects of, say, um, the difficulties of working in today's organizations. Um, 
at the extreme level, we would hope that everybody's practicing it and everybody's flourishing. The word we use um, is sort of finding your strengths and being the best you can be and growing more satisfied, right? But in between, and you mentioned the term learning agility a moment ago, and in between, I think the before we get to the ideal state where it's for everybody, uh, corporations really should invest in mindfulness for their high potentials. Uh, because there's some research uh, soon to be published by Ken Demuse, who used to work with Conferry and uh, Conferry's Lowinger Institute. And he's finding that the single biggest predictor of whether a high potential will meet the new challenges uh, they're assigned is the aspect of learning agility. Um, and we've known since the 1980s that learning agility is important, but new research shows that it's far more important than we ever imagined and far more important than the second or third uh, factor. And, and for the listeners, uh, define learning agility. So learning agility broadly is the propensity of a person to learn what is new in a new environment when they're out of their comfort zone um, and to not only adapt but to actively seek, for example, uh, feedback, uh, then to strategize how he'll le- he or she will learn what they need to, maybe ch- check back whether uh, they've improved in the eyes of the people who gave the feedback in the first place. So um, in different models of learning agility, one of them by Ken Demuse separates it out into seven subcomponents, of which three, I believe, uh, can be enhanced uh, through mindfulness training. That's self-awareness, um, the responsiveness to feedback, especially negative feedback, and um, what Ken calls environmental mindfulness, but which is contextual mindfulness, sort of knowing what's changing in the context in your organization, in your industry, and not being sort of only focused on your own self-awareness. And then adapting. And then adapting, mm-hmm. right? So I think if if you improve on these three aspects of your learning agility through mindfulness, the chances of you being successful as a high potential are much higher. Okay. I'm a managing director for a large consumer's good products, mm-hmm. uh, pro- consumer goods company in Asia Pacific. And I know that um, I, I'm under quarterly pressure. Mm-hmm. And um, Wall Street is screaming, and my boss back at headquarters is saying more and better. And I've got thousands of people who report to me. And I know that it's about doing more, faster, more thoughtfully, getting a result, and being able to deliver that result in a shorter period of time. And then this guy comes along and tells me, you know what, really what you need is to pull back give people time to think, to get in a calm state of mind, to be reflective, to not be reactive, to be a little more um, prepared to uh, adapt, adjust, be agile. Where in the world am I going to get time to do that? Right. So I guess if I put myself in that situation, I would say, hand on my heart, do I really think I can produce the results by squeezing harder, um, adding more pressure, it might have worked in the past um, for me. Uh, it might work for a short while, but you know that eventually it's going to catch up with you. So the question is, do you have the wherewithal to negotiate with your stakeholders for more time and explain to them the logic of taking a longer-term view? And if you can't, and you should definitely try first, and if you can't, maybe you have to build other alternatives so that you can move to another organization that is more reasonable, uh, sensible, and trust your judgment when you say, we need more time. 
Shrivan, when you look at where we are going in terms of um, you know growth at all costs, it, it's now it, it it feeds into this whole conversation around sustainability and a shifting economic model and post capitalism, and we can go on and on into all these other areas, which we won't for the purpose of this conversation. But it, it feels to me that we're in an inflection point where certain organizations are going to make decisions to do it differently, do it better if you will, do it more mindfully. Can you give us examples or are you aware of organizations that have have evidence to show that with the right level investment at an organizational level, mindfulness can make a difference? Mm. I can't say offhand because this is a new phenomenon. I agree with you completely that we're at an inflection point. A couple of years ago, there was a book written by some academics in the UK called Prosperity Without Growth. Now, that's a great book and I recommend anybody... Uh, to take a look at it. Um, we no longer have the luxury, in my opinion, of the baby boomers of the 60s and the 70s uh, at a time of incredible economic growth where there was so much of the environment to pillage. Um, we're running out of environment uh, to exploit. Um, there can still be growth for some companies. Um, and for some companies, they will grow, but w- with a risky, unsustainable model. So the question is, how do you balance between growth, which everybody wants, and sustainability? Um, There are some increasingly enlightened models, those companies that take care of their stakeholders, that care for the environment, that anticipate that consumers of the future will care about this. It's too early yet to see whose strategies will succeed and whose will fail. But I I work with some uh, companies uh, and I only work with those that take an enlightened view about sustainability and who are wealthy enough to know that we'll survive and we don't have to continue making the kinds of growth that we were used to. You know, I'm spitballing here for a bit of a foothold for mm. mindfulness. You know, I, I right. think back to the the conversations that I had maybe seven, eight, nine years ago uh, with organizations that were coming up uh, and confronting the aspect of sustainability, and shareholders or stakeholders starting to ask, "What are you doing?" And the foothold for many organizations then was efficiency. Mm-hmm. And efficiency became, if you will, the way that they were able to get in to say, well, listen, it's not just good for the environment, it's good for our organization. We're reducing, we're in, in, you know, putting in LED lighting, we're creating right. green supply chains, we're looking for ways of becoming more efficient, more cost-effective, leaner, better, right? And so those were ways of justifying, if you will, what ultimately became benefits for the environment in the greater sustainability uh, you know, uh, adventure. With mindfulness, we're now talking about the people, right, instead of the processes. And it's fascinating to me because every organization out there has thrown technology, KPIs, process revisions, process reforms, and now they're bumping up off of this very thorny issue called people. And many are telling me that people aren't keeping pace with the technology or processes that they deployed. And it then makes me think, well, maybe it's because the orientation or the expectation or there's simply a lack of training and development in such a way that people can saddle up to these changes that are actually allowing for a higher performing organization. What are your thoughts on that? 
Right. Um, so many things I could say about that. Let me take the easiest part first. Um, so people having to adapt uh, as fast as companies want them to. I think there's change is accelerating and it, it's incredible how people have already adapted to change. But the difficulty is when you have 10 priorities um, to uh, at any given time, um, 10 demands, you open up your email first thing in the morning and everybody wants you to help them do something. Um, your training department suggests a number of things that you should you should upgrade yourself on. You sort of need to decide for yourself which is important, uh, which is strategic, which um, fits together in a coherent picture of the kind of skills and the kind of person you want to be. And that's not easy to do with all those demands and when you're pressed for time. And, and that sounds like almost base case, what we'll call time management or prioritization, right? Where just sort out your house, get, do your housekeeping, get things sorted so that you can actually function so they're not overwhelmed by so many things. So I see that as a starting point. But then mm-hmm. beyond that, now we're yeah. talking about the way you engage or the way you, you, con- you, you deal with your colleagues right. in a more effective way so everybody gets something from that. Where are we going with that? Okay, so probably at the deepest level, my, my understanding of the world and what makes people tick is underpinned by something called evolutionary mismatch. Mm. Um, and some, some colleagues of mine um, at SMU previously, uh, Norman Lee and uh, another friend of mine, Steve Newberg at uh, Arizona State University, recently published uh, an article, quite readable, by, by the layperson. It's called The Mismatch Hypothesis. And basically what this is saying is that our brains and our bodies were, were selected over generations uh, from ancestors in savanna-like environments, right? So they had to hunt, they had to do lots of physical exercise, there was no calorie-rich foods, um, and they were in tribes of 120, 150 people, everybody knew everybody, and if you behaved badly, uh, you'd be out of the tribe, right? And if you behave badly and the, and the chief of the tribe was unhappy with you, it, it could almost mean expulsion from the tribe and death. Now we take that person and we put him in a modern environment, getting negative feedback or nasty remarks from a boss on a maybe weekly basis, um, working in nameless, faceless societies where you see more strangers in a day than you do members of your own tribe, um, with devices that call on your attention and scream for your attention using fear sometimes like the modern media news does so we are constantly in the survival mode which isn't great for creativity or productivity and it sort of brings the worst out of us right it's a different form of survival isn't it i mean then it was just trying to feed yourself and your family and not get eaten by a tiger now we're talking about survival in the in the marketplace which sometimes is almost more terrifying because it can come from anywhere at any time yes but you see I, I, I disagree with your use of the word survival because most of us are nowhere near dying. We might get poorer. We might have a loss of status. We, many things could be negative, but it's nowhere near life-threatening. But the psychology is the same. Yes, and the psychology gets over-triggered. We get triggered a hundred times a day by things that shouldn't threaten us and we're living in a constant state of fear and panic. It's not bringing out the best in us. Now we're coming back full circle. Yes. So therefore... Living in this high-paced, high-stressed, uh, un- uh, uh, uncomfortable, unfamiliar envi- environment, if you look at the long arc of human history, mm-hmm. now the idea is to deploy some methodology, some tools to help bring you back into sync with your natural state. 
Yes. Um, so I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure it's our natural state to be calm and mindful. But I think um, we used to have a lot more alternation between peace and comfort and being under stress. Now we're constantly under under stress, even when we don't need to be. So yes, I agree. Mindfulness is an antidote to this evolutionary mismatch. Right. It's a way for you to take control of your autopilot and your fright, flight, or flee uh, responses and behave in more appropriate ways. Mm. But it doesn't come naturally. Mindfulness, um, a practice, it's not so much in the learning, but it's in the practice of mindfulness where the difference is made. Mm. And in this uh, immediate gratification society that we live in where you get sick, you take a pill, you wanna climb Everest, you pay $5 million and you get a group of Sherpas to haul you up the mountain. Um, you know, There's always some way of getting something done faster if you have money, resource, uh, and tenacity, right? But that's not what we're talking about with mindfulness. We're talking about literally you and your mind and time in order to basically uh, Find that center in such a way that you can then relax into a state of clarity. Have I overstated that, or is that pretty much what we're trying to do here? Oh, you, you're absolutely correct. I, I just like to reinforce that, that fact that we live in a consumer society where we think that for the right price, we can buy anything we need, right? But mindfulness, like physical exercise, is a practice. Your, your physical trainer can't exercise for you. Uh, you have to do it yourself. You have to invest the time. And then as a result, your body and your brain rewires itself into a new configuration, mm. which then becomes your own mm. and which gives you greater resilience um, for the stresses in life, right? So nothing takes away from the effort you have to put into practice. But I tell my participants, just like an acquired taste, if you want to introduce somebody to um, a, a delicacy in your culture, which is an acquired taste, you want to bring them to the best version of that thing the first time because you don't want to put them off for the wrong reason. Mm. So when I introduce mindfulness to people, my aspiration is to give them the best first experience of mindfulness that is the easiest to do, the most pleasant, and that they can bring home and practice for a few days Mm. so that they they start on an upward trajectory. What happened to the old saying, no pain, no gain? Oh, I don't believe in no pain, no gain. Look, a baby cheetah grows up to be the fastest hunter without ever training to, till it aches or it pukes. It's human beings who, who overdo these things. I think there's effort required, but it should be a pleasant effort that you enjoy, but never to the extent of pain. Okay. So, so let's go back then to what you would say to that regional managing director for the consumer goods company, who I alluded to before, who's saying, I'm under pressure I, I, I'm, I, the, the world's changing. I'm, I'm, I see, you know, turnover and churn in my organization. The morale is down. Uh, you know, uh, uh, there's nutritional issues that are coming up, and now I may be under the under the gun for that. I mean, how do I? How do you convince this managing director, this CEO, to make a decision to engage an organization or a series of individuals to help his company uh, apply? mindfulness in order to get a better result. Right. So I think he, to simplify it, he's got two options. And he should try the first before he goes to the second one. The first option is to understand the problem as clearly as possible and develop the skills to persuade his stakeholders on his better view on the approach. So upselling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That's well put. Um, 
The other option, if, if he fails to do this, is to ask himself, does he really need this job at this level of remuneration or can he walk away from it because he has more than enough to feed himself and his family and wants to live a life that's more aligned with his own personal values. Now, in the long term, research uh, by Martin Seligman on uh, values in action or what he calls character strengths shows that lifetime satisfaction depends more about living in accordance with your values and beyond a certain amount of income we don't get happier. So, but what you're advocating here is, listen, if you can't get the budget to deploy mindfulness in your organization, quit. No. Now, you have to be mindful. You have to be mindful. Sometimes you have to stick it out for a bit longer because that's, you don't have better options. Mm. Um, but you should, you should really try to work. I think it's the obligation of every person to try to bring their organizations to a better level. Um, and you have to try. And you never know. Maybe the, the other people are waiting for a voice like yours to start the conversation. And maybe people are just too busy to think about it, but once you express it to them, they'll see the logic of what you're saying. Um, okay, so you asked for an example earlier. There is an example. Sunny Verghese at Olam, a couple of years gave a keynote speech at a conference um, I, I organized. Um, and he described how he changed the profile of his investors to include long-term investors, um, there was one Japanese company, I forget the name, uh, and as well as Tamasic. So he switched his investors un- to more long-term, uh, pe- investors with a more long-term view, and then he was able to make his agri-food business more sustainable. Mm. Um, so it begins by being selective about which uh, shareholders you try to attract, mm. and then you can turn things around. Yeah, I mean, it's just one piece of the great soup of corporate transformation, isn't it? It's just, you know, if, if you don't get the people thing right, and we're not saying necessarily that, that you know, mindfulness is the be-all to end-all, we're simply saying that it's another tool you can apply in your attempt to try to bring an organization back to a state of balance, a state of full function, um, instead of just a kind of knee-jerk reaction to every single problem that comes up um, without ever really knowing whether or not you're going to get the result required. Yeah. One way to look at it is mindfulness helps you separate the signal from the noise, Mm. right? And there's lots of information, lots of demands, and some of them you have to ignore. And you never really know for sure, but most of us probably can do a better job than we're currently doing, Mm. right? Um, And so it's about doing well, but doing well in a sustainable way. Now, if you talk about mindfulness, the Eastern approach and the Western approach, I'm not saying that there is one Western approach. Some approaches like St. Francis, sorry, St. Ignatius of Loyola, some approaches like St. Ignatius of Loyola um, inherently have a spiritual dimension to meditation and and they seek sort of discernment in making wiser decisions. Some modern uh, mindfulness uh, practices in the West are completely devoid of an ethical or value-based component. It's just about being more mindful about what you're doing regardless of your aim. In the East, it's always been ethically um, infused, right? And that's because um, in the East, if you ask what's the difference between wisdom and compassion, let me ask you, is there any action you could conceive of which is wise but not compassionate? If you aren't compassionate and you don't take into account the effect on others, it will inevitably be unsustainable. And how wise is that? Not at all. 
Right. So in the I'm glad you think so. In the East, we are very harmonious. We're communal. We like to get along. If you look at words like gotong royong in in uh, Bahasa and uh, bayanihan in the Philippines, it's about community spirit. And in in the in the US, you'd call it barn raising, right? Everybody gets together and they work together. But it's very much a part of our culture. But even that culture is under threat, given the evolutionary mismatch and the increasing use of technology, crowded cities. Um, and the degradation of the environment. But, but I want to go back to something you just said. Um, There's this idea of, of spirituality being infused in the Eastern tradition. Mm-hmm. If you strip out the spiritual aspects and mindfulness, what are you left with? Right. So I think there is there are different kinds of spirituality. There's some which are unique to each tradition, and I believe there's a core universal aspect of spirituality regardless of which tradition you follow. And that tends to be compassion and love uh, and consideration for other beings, whether limited to humans or all living beings, right? Um, so if I call that a universal spirituality, if I call that a universal dimension, I, I believe that has to be part of mindfulness. Without that, you could have focused attention, you could have concentration, but in my books, that isn't mindfulness because it doesn't lead necessarily to wise action. So it's, it's basically just reorienting the focus of mindfulness being something which gives you a greater sense of uh, collective well-being, a desire to do well in the world and do right by others, compassion, love, whereas, um, you know, a, in, in some ways, a, a perhaps a spiritually infused Eastern tradition is about tr- uh, uh, attempting to achieve nirvana, basically becoming one with the overlord or God or the divine. I mean, th- there are other end games or end goals, I guess, in, in the Eastern traditional practice of mindfulness uh, that are not applicable, but at the same time, it carries many of the same characteristics, does it not? So no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I understood you correctly, but you may have misunderstood me. So um, I'm not saying that um, I'm not saying that you must pursue an end game or a spiritual dimension. That's that's not necessary. But I think you must aim for getting along with other people and taking into account other people's interests, right? Whereas there is an extreme form of mindfulness some places where they go, no, I'm just teaching you to concentrate and focus. Uh, I don't care what you use that increased focus for, right? So I'm not going to either extreme. I'm just saying you need to at least have a focus not just on yourself, but on others. Mm. So it's both being selfish and selfless. It's that sweet spot between the two. Imagine uh, like when you're an airline and the cabin pressure decreases. You have to take care of yourself before you can take care of your kid, mm. right? That's, so they tell us. Yeah. Well, I haven't tried otherwise. Yeah. Um, but um, so it's not mutually exclusive. It's it's one of those false dichotomies. You don't have to be only selfish or only selfless. But if you take care of yourself, you're in a better position to take care of others. Yeah. And mindfulness keeps helps you keep this balance between the two. I don't believe there is a workable version of mindfulness that, that is purely self-oriented. Mm. Shriven, you've bitten off a big one uh, when it comes to <laughs> mindfulness, for sure. Uh, I admire your efforts. Uh, I, I'd love to you know, uh, keep speaking with you and see if we can identify some companies and organizations that can embrace and demonstrate a better result uh, and leave their people happier and better functioning. Thank you very much. And just one final word. Um, my experience has been that lots of executive and leadership development programs um, have great content but they walk away forgetting much of the stuff they learned in class and there is no sustainable behavior change. There is this thing we call the knowing-doing gap as well. 
And I think my experience has been that mindfulness, when added with some of these leadership interventions, gives people a tool for reinforcing the changes they they commit to making and helping them succeed at the positive change they aspire to. Thank you, Shrivan. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Shrivan Naidu, a Singapore-based leadership development expert who sees hope and prospect through the introduction of mindfulness in the workplace. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, I reflect on the conversation you just heard and pose a few additional thoughts and questions of my own. Corporations are stress factories, particularly those that are doing really well or really poorly. Most of you listening to this podcast know what I'm talking about. There's never enough time to get all the things done that need to get done. Indeed, time may be our single most valuable resource. So against this backdrop, what possible rationale could there be to sit in cross-legged silence and contemplate one's navel? It's like throwing away the bailing bucket and trying to remain calm when the ship is sinking and taking on water fast. Sometimes the most contrarian practices yield the best results. And in the case of mindfulness, studies show that individuals and organizations that invest in mindfulness or some form of meditation training can make a difference. Have you heard of Google, Apple, General Mills, Goldman Sachs, Intel, and the Royal Dutch Shell Company? All fans of mindfulness and organizations that have invested, measured, and tracked the results born of mindfulness training. Agility, many argue, is the leadership attribute of greatest value in our VUCA world. VUCA, if you don't know, is an acronym for vulnerability, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, or what I like to refer to as the four horsemen of the corporate apocalypse. Ask any CEO who's not asleep today, and they'll tell you that these are among the most challenging times the modern corporation has ever faced. It's a moment of convergence when geopolitics, digital disruption, shareholder activism, tech-driven transparency, and global competition are all conspiring against planned growth and profitability. So what's the best thing to do? Meditate, apparently. There's newfound popularity in the idea of slowing down to speed up. The pace of change, in other words, is outstripping our cognitive ability to keep up. As a result, we tend to lean increasingly on impulse or emotional response that rely less on rational thinking and more on threat or risk mitigation. A mindfulness practice, so advocates argue, conditions the individual to remain calm, present, and focused. It is a defense shield against an onslaught of problems requiring quick decision-making, a.k.a. agility. Shriven and other leadership development experts who've embraced mindfulness as a scientifically proven methodology for reducing stress, improving performance, and ensuring better overall outcomes, says the real challenge lies in getting corporations to slow down long enough to weigh the pros and cons of mindfulness. Just as one might apply a cost-benefit analysis in selecting a new IT platform, so should companies contemplate the potential long-term benefits of offering mindfulness training to their leaders and employees. Can the results be measured? It's a common question. We all know how companies like to measure things. Well, if you consider reduced absenteeism, increased levels of employee engagement, and reduced operational risk, then, well, I guess it can be measured. Still not sure? then I suggest you meditate on it. 
That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. As always, we thank you for listening. And if time is your most valuable resource, then we urge you to subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Each week, we summarize the many ideas and themes presented by our guests. To sign up, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving your weekly update. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or comment and rate the program on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.